This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 221, and we are recording on March 3rd. I'm Jen Northington. I'm here with Amanda Nelson, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Hello, Amanda. Hello. We are recording this on Super Tuesday, and, you know, (laughs) there's a lot of coronavirus news, so we're both a little bit just like, what is going on? (laughs) I'm going to just, I live in this office. I might move my mattress to my dog's crate, and then I'm just never leaving. (laughs) That seems a reasonable response to the world right now. (laughs) Just call me when it's all over. All of it. Yeah, I hear that. Uh, So today, actually, instead of doing what we normally do, which is answer specific questions from y'all, we are doing a themed show, which, as you know, we do every now and then. Um, And today's theme is Latinx authors and writers, which we're super jazzed about. Uh, But before we get into that, I will tell you how the show normally works which is that you send in, you, any listener, send in requests for you specifically. I'm talking to you. Uh, <laughs> the call is coming from inside the That's fire. right. You can send in a request for a reading recommendation for yourself, for a family member or a friend, or for your book club, or because you're traveling or whatever. Uh, send us a email at getbookedepicriot.com, or you can put it in the form that's at the bottom of the show notes on the site. And if you have a time-sensitive request because you're looking for a response by a specific date, please put time-sensitive, all caps, either in the subject line of the email or the very first line of the form. We will do our best to get to it. If we don't think we're going to get to it on air, we might send you an email response so you can keep an eye out for those. And we do have some feedback from listeners for our uh, askers. Uh, Stacy says, for the mom looking for chapter books for her four-year-old, I recommend the Magic Treehouse series by Mary Pope Osborne. Uh, I don't really think those need a sum up. <laughs> Everybody knows about the Magic Tree House, but good call. Uh, Stacy says, I read these with my sons when they were little and they loved the adventures that Jack and Annie enjoyed and maybe learned some things along the way. And then Kara says, for the listener who wanted Tamara Pierce read-alikes, the afterword by E.K. Johnston gave me Tortal, but for feminism in 2020 vibes. There are brown nights, uh, brown women nights and queer women nights and the fantasy world where the story takes place is beyond the hand-wringing about whether they should let women be knights in the first place. That sounds great. Thank you all for the feedback. All right, let's see. Let's each do a book pick, and then we will talk about our first sponsor. How's that sound, Amanda? Sure. Okay, I'm just going to keep on talking. And my first pick is a romance by Mia Sosa, who is Afro-Latinx. And oh my goodness, I love this book so much. It's crashing into her, which inevitably is the third book in the series. I haven't read the other ones. It doesn't matter. It's so much fun. 
It is about a woman named Eva Montgomery. Oh, and this is an interracial couple, FYI. Um, Eva Montgomery, who is Black, and she had a one-night stand at her friend's wedding uh, because she was newly single, and she figured, like, all right, you know, this is my opportunity. I'll never see this person again, probably, and it'll be fine. Spoiler. She does see him again. She ends up moving to L.A. for a job opportunity at like a fitness center. She's like a she's you know, she teaches fitness classes. She's a very athletic, physical person. Um, and she gets this job offer to teach at a place in L.A. And that's where Anthony Castillo lives, who is who she had the one night stand with. And they run into each other because she decides to take a stunt double training course. And whoops, it's at his school. <laughs> and so they have not been able to stop thinking about each other since the wedding, but they both have a lot of hangups about relationships and the way that they work through them and also all of the fun like stunt training stuff that happens in this book is totally my jam. There's also a lot of food talk, which I love in a romance novel. There's family and friends who are involved, which I also love. I love seeing the supporting communities around the hero and heroines. And it's just really, it's lovely. What's not to like? I loved it so much. Uh, so again, that is Crashing Into Her by Mia Sosa. Okay, my first pick is Spirit Run, a 6,000-mile marathon through North America's stolen land by Noe Alvarez, who is Mexican-American and indigenous. And a side note, this might be a sponsor for this show. <laughs> I did not check. <laughs> but I know that we have a campaign for Spirit Run coming up. Um, so if the pre-roll is for that, my bad. It's fine. I read this before it was booked. So, uh, you know, clean hands, etc. So this is a memoir that I am obsessed with. Uh, Noe grew up in Yakima, Washington, um, working at an apple picking plant alongside his mother. And he gets a university scholarship to, you know, leave Yakima, which is like his whole goal, uh, and goes off to school to like a very, I don't remember which one, but it's like a very fancy college. Um, and he has a really hard time fitting in as a first-generation college-goer in his family. Um, and so when he's 19, he hears about a Native American and First Nations movement called the Peace and Dignity Journey, which is an epic marathon across North America. So, like, it starts in Canada and goes all the way to Guatemala. Uh, and it's, a, like, a, just a group of indigenous people getting together to run for months. Like, they just run nonstop, hours and hours and hours and hours, every single day, running a marathon a day, basically, every day for months. And the goal is to renew cultural connections between indigenous groups and heal the land as they're, you know, as they're going. So he drops out of school and joins, um, this group, Peace and Dignity Journey to, to run his first, I don't even, I don't even want to call it an ultra marathon. Cause like an ultra marathon is like a hundred miles and this is like 3000 miles. So I don't, there's not even like a, a word for it. And so he spends four months running from Canada to Guatemala and it is rough, y'all. Like it's not just physically difficult, but he doesn't shy away from portraying all of the infighting that happens um, amongst the runners and also amongst the runners and the communities that they're running through who are not always like super welcoming to this group of, um, you know, like this kind of, it's a ragtag bunch of people from different tribes and different communities who aren't always from, you know, part of the communities that they're, you know, barging into, uh, according to some of the people who live there. And they don't appreciate often, like, the, um, the the farther south they go, especially, the more it feels to communities like a bunch of people from North America are, like, invading their space. And so it gets more and more contentious and often violent. Um, there are a lot of instances where, like, motorists throw stuff at the runners because they're running very openly for the specific cause. Like, they're running with a 
a big staff and it's got feathers on it and like they're not trying to hide what they're trying to do so they do face a lot of racism there's also like an incident with a mountain lion that was a little bit oh terrifying my God. i know <laughs> because they run alone like they have to do it in stages to cover all the ground and the time so like you get to you it's very much like you're kicked out of the van you've got 18 miles see you at the end wow. you know and then you're just by yourself um with no protection which turns out to be like a problem for a lot of the female runners mm-hmm. especially so it's it's this great uh, interwoven story of like comments on class and you know being an indigenous member of North American society, being a Mexican American, um, and a really like intense physical feat. At the end of it, his knees are completely shot when he goes home. Um, it's just bananas. But he did this, I think, in two thousand six is when he ran his first one, and he's doing it again this year. So. Something calls to the man about this movement. So that spirit run by Noe Alvarez. I can't wait to read that. I have it. I'm excited. Oh, it's so great. All right. Let's take a break for our first sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone, but you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. Eh, she wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode today's episode is brought to you by bloom books diana dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall gorgeous hockey player shane's shenanigans because you know what if they shenan once they'll shenan again so she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building but turns out shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits but when his ex comes back into the picture he needs a plan and who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor so a fake relationship might be perfect for diana's own ex issues but diana is used to living by the rules will she learn that when it comes to love Rules are meant to be broken. Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Okay. So my nonfiction pick is a hefty one, but I think it's so important and so good. It's Ordinary Girls by Shakira Diaz, uh, who was born in Puerto Rico. And this is her memoir. And she 
has lived a very, she had a very rough childhood. Uh, she grew up in housing projects in Puerto Rico and then Miami Beach when her family moved to America. And her mother battled schizophrenia and uh, addiction. And her father, you know, was not always there for her in various ways, including, you know, having affairs and there's all kinds of stuff going on. Um, this book, I will give some trigger warnings right now, uh, contains like Occasionally graphic depictions of child abuse, domestic violence, self-harm, suicidal ideation and suicidal attempts, rape, homophobia, struggles with mental illness and addiction. So So all of it. All of it. Yeah, really all. I mean, she's been through a lot and it is just heartbreaking, but it's also really raw and really frank and really powerful. And it is so beautifully written. Oh, she's so good at words. Well. So she is, you know, cataloging everything from, you know, her sense of having had an idyllic childhood up to a certain point and not understanding what forces were at work in her family until everything started to fall apart. Um, Her struggles to find herself uh, as they kept moving around, even within, you know, Miami Beach, they were rarely in the same place for very long. And, you know, she was not a good kid. She didn't do well in school. She got in fights. She experimented with drugs. Like, you know, she ran around with boys. Like, she just, she was doing everything she could to try to figure out how to be in the world. It just was all going very wrong for her. And, and yeah, she's so honest and real about what all of those forces in her life combined to do to her sense of self. And she also struggles with her own queerness. Um, she joins the army at one point and you're just like, oh man, like, I don't even know how this is going to go. Like, it's just really, and that's actually one of the least harrowing parts of the whole book, even though there's like really messed up stuff there too. So it's just, it's a really, Really powerful memoir. And I feel like I'm a little bit all over the place talking about it because it's hard to like focus in on any one particular section because they all interweave with each other in this really interesting way um, because they it is a little bit more like a collection of essays than like one narrative through line. They sort of cycle around each other and hop back and forth in time and, you know, refer to things that then maybe you don't see the fullness of until a later essay. So it's it is it's a really interesting read. And like I said, a really powerful, really frank one. And I think that yeah, she's an incredible writer. I can't wait to see what else she writes. Like, will it be more nonfiction or fiction? I would love to see some fiction from her. Um, but I just really want to read anything she writes, honestly, at this point. And her love for the girls that she grew up with and her past self, like as broken and damaged as that self was and as many bad choices as that self made is so real and so healing. And it's just, yeah, it's fantastic. So again, that's Ordinary Girls by Jakira Diaz. All right. My next pick is a fantasy novel. It is Diamond City by Francesca Flores, who is Latina, but I could not get more specific than that. And no amount of Googling was helpful, but whatever. It's fine. So Diamond City... I listened to this on audio, and the introduction on audio was really interesting because it's the author talking about how she was inspired to write this book by her own experiences with homelessness during college and, um, like, really extreme poverty when she was young. Uh, And so when you start the book and, you know, the main character is this very violent assassin, 
who works for a crime boss in this universe. And it, it, with that in the back of your head of knowing that this was inspired by like real poverty and homelessness, it makes it such a, such a dynamic kind of story. So it's about Aina Solis, who is an assassin. Um, she lives in Diamond City, which is the city that was built on a kind of ancient indigenous magical religious kind of um, culture. And they used diamonds as part of their rituals and for casting spells and things like that. But that has been outlawed. The, the the people who are in charge of the city, it's kind of an oligarchy, are very much focused on making the city industrial and new, moving past that kind of what they think of as superstition and folk folklore and all that. And so the use of diamonds in magic has been outlawed. And instead, diamonds are just being traded. Um, and it's not just traded, um, but there's also like a black market, which is how Ina makes like extra money. She trades in the black market for diamonds um, on the side. But during the during the day, her day job is that she kills people. Her day job is as an assassin. And her boss is the head of this crime family who found her when she was a teenager living on the streets, uh, totally helpless and homeless, and trained her to become this kind of, he calls her his, his blade. And he gives her an assignment that is to assassinate the son of one of the city's more powerful businessmen. And in doing that, she will earn enough money to go off on, on her own and set up her own business, um, her own trading house and kind of get out from under the student's thumb and like be her own boss and be her own person and not have to depend, not have to depend on anyone. So there's a lot going on here, right? It's like very much a, um, indigenous culture versus colonial, colonializing industrialist kind of thing told through the story of this one woman whose childhood of, of violence and neglect has turned her into this very hard kind of person. So she teams up with a friend of hers, a guy and goes out to, you know, commit this assassination basically it does not go as planned and she finds herself thrown into like this huge political kind of firestorm in the city so it's like very adventurous and i really love a female assassin which is like a weird sentence to say out of this i mean right i really yeah i don't think you're alone amanda (laughs) out of this one specific context maybe just don't say that on the streets like just don't say that when you're outside but in books i love a female assassin especially when she like she's very um she's hard and cold obviously as you would have to be but she's not close-minded and she's willing to be wrong and she's willing to um she's very like flexible intellectually she's just a really interesting character anyway so that is diamond city by francesca flores I also have a fantasy, and it sort of has what's well, assassin adjacent. Let's say <laughs> it's the "We Set the Dark on Fire" duology by Taylor K. Mejia, who is Mexican American and very active in the Latinx lit community, uh, specifically in the YA community. And I, the second book in this duology, just came out. I loved it so much. Oh my god, I love the first one. I love the second one even more. I. Just think everybody should read it. It's great. It is set on... Oh, wait. Rewind for a moment. Trigger warnings. Uh, There is some assault and abuse of women and also some homophobia in here. So this is set on an island where the island is divided in half uh, by a literal wall. And there are the haves and have-nots. The haves are on one side of the wall. The have-nots are on the other. And it's a highly stratified society in many ways, including that the roles for women are extremely prescribed. So if you are a high-ranking family or a wealthy family, your family setup is that there is a like husband and then two wives. And one is the premier. Uh, 
who is like the one who is the, you know, basically like a secretary. Like she's smart. She's politically savvy. She keeps the household timetable. She runs a tight ship. Like, you know, she knows how to do all of the things and get everything done and helps the husband in his career endeavors, etc. And then there's the Segunda, who is supposed to be the one who is emotional and beautiful and sensual and, you know, cares for the emotional well-being of the house and, like, whose job is to look pretty. And that is, you know, the way that it's set up. And there's a school, of course there is, the Medio School for Girls, which is like the elite school to train young women to be one of those two roles in high society. And the first book, we meet Daniela Vargas, who is training to be a primera. She's like the school's top student. And she's all set to be married to one of the like, you know, most distinguished young gentlemen of the society. But she is there under false pretenses. Her parents smuggled her over the wall, fake papers, the whole nine yards, because they wanted her to have a better life. And everything she has done has been for that sacrifice. Like, she'll never see her family again, because that would put all of them in danger. She logistically can't get over the wall to see them. And she just, like, is laser focused on achieving the best possible outcome because that's what her family has sacrificed to do to to make happen. Um, and then like the night before she said to graduate and like start her marriage and this whole nine yards, she gets contacted by the political resistance called Lavaz. And they're like, we know that you're here under false pretenses. And if you don't spy for us, we will out you. And so she has to decide like, What is she going to do? Does she believe in what the resistance is standing for? Does she, like, is she willing to endanger herself? Is she willing to endanger her family? Like, what is she willing to do? And this is not a super, like, there are other, you know, dystopian YA novels with this kind of setup. But this one felt so different because the world building itself is so different. The mythology that um, Mejia builds around, like, how this division came to be is, like, really kind of beautiful and amazing. Um, and also, you know, very limiting in real ways. And the society is very obviously informed by Latinx culture. And Daniela is such a fantastic character. And and I think that, you know, one of the things I love is that in this series, like, they, the characters make real mistakes and really struggle with the consequences of their actions, and they're allowed to fail and then have to pick themselves up and figure out how to make it right. And there's no, like, deus ex machina. Like, they have to figure out everything sort of themselves. And the second book builds on that in a really amazing way. I don't want to give any spoilers. Um, but it's just so good. It's so good. So everybody needs to read it. I'm just saying. (laughs) Again, that's We Set the Dark on Fire. It's a two-book series. That is the name of the first book by Taylor K. Mejia. All right. I have some literary fiction for you. Um, I picked Dominicana by Angie Cruz, um, who is Dominican, as you can probably guess from the title. So I love this book so much, and it was just longlisted um, yesterday, This well, depending on what time zone you're in, for the Women's Prize, which is very exciting. It's very deserving. Um, and it's about a 15-year-old girl named Anna who lives in the Dominican Republic, and her family is trying to marry her off, basically. And she um, has, like, a boy that she loves, but that's not going to happen. She gets betrothed to like there's no real way to put it but she gets betrothed to a man named juan ruiz who travels back and forth from the dominican and new york where he has from what rumors say 
done really well for himself and he's got like a nice apartment and a lot of money and in the Dominican he has uh, a restaurant that his family owns and he wants to become part of Anna's family so that he can have access to some of her family's land like it's very much a business proposal and her family is very eager for her to marry Juan so that she can go to New York um, and make it easier for them to eventually immigrate out of the Dominican themselves. So she's kind of, she's forced into this marriage. And he seems nice enough, but she like obviously does not love him and he does not love her. Uh, but away they go. And so they get married and they, they go to New York and it turns out, oh, I forgot, trigger warnings for domestic violence, um, for this one. Um, it turns out that Juan is a garbage can and I don't like him at all. He is very violent. Um, he has, misled Anna and her family to a pretty big degree about his success level in New York, which is much smaller um, than he led them to believe. And so she is stuck, not speaking English, at this walk-up in Washington Heights that doesn't have any heat, um, and she can't leave because he won't let her, um, and she, she, you know, can't ask for help. So she's stuck there um, and, like, just, like, cleaning his house and Figuring out what she wants to do with herself because she was told that she was going to go to New York and learn English and learn how to become a typist and maybe start her own company and, you know, call for her family to come join her. None of that is happening. Juan is terrible. Um, he beats her. And after one particularly uh, um, violent fight that they get into, she decides she's going to run away. So she goes to the bus station by herself and she gets stopped by Juan's brother, Cesar, who is much nicer to her than Juan is. And he brings her home. Juan has to go back to the Dominican at one point because of the political unrest that's happening there. It's this takes place in 1965 so he has to go home and protect his family's assets and while he's gone caesar and anna develop like become much closer if you get what i'm saying also she's pregnant so like that's complicated yeah it's like a whole it's a whole thing um her family does eventually part of her family does eventually make it to new york and when they see you know what life is like there it's just such an intense family drama um and has a lot of historical elements that i was not familiar with specifically about the political turmoil happening in the dominican republic at the time and like the assassination of Malcolm X weaves really heavily into the book. It's just very uh, like fascinating if you are unfamiliar with that particular period of history for that specific immigrant community. So I love this book so much. Anna is such a like, oh, oak, you know, like just like strong. And she's here to protect herself and her family. And she's going to do what she even though she's in like this country where she doesn't know anyone and can't speak the language. Um, and the only person who is there to protect her turns out to be like, Satan. Like, she is everything. I love her so much. So that's Dominicana by Angie Cruz. All right, let's take another sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. So I have a literary fiction also. It is Revolution Sunday by Wendy Guerra, and it's translated by Achi Obejas, who is my favorite translator for the record. Um, and this takes place in Cuba. Wendy Guerra is a Cuban poet and novelist. And this is so interesting because, you know, I haven't read much about contemporary Cuba at all. And I don't know what I was expecting, but like, this is just a fascinating read. Uh, Cleo is the main character, and she is the only daughter of like a once very prominent Cuban family. And she's a young writer who is just starting to get recognition for her work. And she ends up going to Spain to collect like a very prestigious award. And she, of course, connects with the Cuban expat community there. But they view her with a lot of suspicion. They think that she's probably an informant for the Castro regime, because otherwise, why does she live still live in Cuba? Like, why would she go back? Um, and then when she goes back to Cuba, they're like... Why would you come back unless you're spying on us? So everybody thinks she's spying on them. She's just like, I'm just a writer. Like, I don't, I'm not trying to do anything other than live, which everybody makes increasingly difficult for her. And then on top of it all, she meets a Hollywood filmmaker. Well, a guy who claims to be a Hollywood filmmaker. And wants to make a documentary about her family. And she's just like, I guess. Uh, and she falls for him and they start an affair. And then through her interactions with him and also like trying to fend off, you know, the very unwelcome and intrusive attentions of the Cuban government, she starts to discover that there are family secrets that uh, explain a lot, but also are very difficult for her to process. And it is like, one of those really tense novels like even when not much is happening like she's just going to like a literary party or you know she's sitting in her apartment trying to write it just feels incredibly tense because of all of the political and cultural context surrounding this character and then when things do actually happen I was just like like I could feel myself gritting my teeth in anticipation of like oh what is gonna happen like this is so uncomfortable and I'm so concerned for this character who's like a you know she's just like any young intellectual so she's making some choices that are just like oh god what is gonna happen 
And it is. It's like a really fascinating novel about what the literary scene is like in Cuba and Spain, about not being able to be published in your own country and winning awards for books about your country that nobody in your country has ever read. And then, you know, dealing with this political situation and this weird situation where people don't understand why you would stay or why you would leave given, you know, who you are. Oh, it's like, it's just amazing on so many levels. So again, that's Revolution Sunday by Wendy Guerra, and it's translated by Achi Obejas. All right, I have a collection of short stories for y'all, and it is the prettiest book I've ever seen in my life, so you're (laughs) just going to want to go buy it because the cover's so nice. It's Sabrina and Karina by Kali Fajardo Anstein. And this is, like, the only book about the American West that I care about anymore. (laughs) There are no others. All other books are gone. So I'm sorry about that and the disappearance of those other Westerns, but this is the only one. So this is a collection of short stories about indigenous Latina characters that takes place in the West, obviously, but mostly in Colorado and like mostly around Denver and Southern, the Southern part of the state, which is where the author is from. Um, So every story is about a different woman um, and their experiences living in what is becoming a like quickly, more and more quickly gentrified um, part of the country. And this is like, I have never read, I've never read, I've never even heard of, I don't think, although I'm sure they exist, um, a book about indigenous Latina um, characters from that specific part of the country. Like this is, it feels very untold to me, but that might just be my own, like, I don't know, readerly bias. I'm not sure. So if you have any other recommendations for this community, please let me know because I would love to read more. Um, so, and she's writing a novel. Anyway, um, so like there's a, there's a story, one of my favorite stories in the collection is, uh, called Tommy and it's about a woman who gets arrested. She goes to prison and then when she comes out, she finds herself in like, go, she goes home to live with her brother, but the city is completely different and it's been like gentrified. She doesn't recognize anything. She doesn't recognize anyone. And then like the stories of her trying to get a job, it's all very like, uncomfortable and there um there's also one called i think it's called sisters which takes place in the 50s and is about obviously a set of sisters who are um who uh, are like looking one of them is looking for a husband one of them is super not because she's secretly a lesbian but is never going to come out because it's 1950 and she's brown and it's the west um and but her sister like hooks her up with a, a white dude and all the white men in this book are like just not the best (laughs) and it's very uncomfortable like there's a lot of absentee fathers um there's a lot of exoticizing of these characters by the white men that they uh are associated with and like the women look especially the older like the mothers and the grandmothers in the book look upon these white dudes as like a, a vehicle for social um advancement but they're uniformly awful it's just so fascinating and um, in the same way that Dominicana was like, oh, I don't know anything about this period of history in this country. Um, I don't know anything about being a member of any of these tribes that she's talking about in, in Denver, uh, right now or in the past. Some of them, you know, like the sister story take place throughout the 20th century. So it's just fascinating. They're all really, she writes in a, um, it's not cold, but she writes with a bit of distance. So the, they're not, in a lot of ways, um, they're not, like some short stories feel very manipulative, if that makes sense. Like you can tell mm. that the author, because they only have 10 pages, are like coming at you with everything they've got. And that this this collection isn't like that at all. Like it's very much you're looking through a window and that's it. How you respond to it emotionally is up to you. Like it's it's almost like she's painted you this landscape and then walked away from you and let you do with that what you will. And I kind of love that kind of style. I've not really encountered that before. So that's Sabrina and Karina by Kali Fajardo Anstein. I need to read that. I have a mystery for us all. It's very exciting because (laughs) I have never before read a mystery with a gay Latino 
like de- main like investigator slash detective slash you know hero as it were and so that is very exciting it is carved in bone by michael nava which here i go again <laughs> technically the second in the series it did not matter to me that it was book number two i don't think it will matter to you uh we might have more you know details about uh the main character who is henry rios but like whatever I thought this was great. Uh, it is also very dark, like super dark. It's more noir, I think, than anything else. And so with that, it comes with trigger warnings for use of slurs, violent homophobia, intimate partner violence and coercive sex, suicide attempts, and internalized homophobia. Um, and it takes place during the 80s in San Francisco as the AIDS crisis is just like first starting to be a thing. And then about uh, 10 or 12 years later, um, and so sort of in the aftermath of that. And the main character, Henry Rios, is a recovering alcoholic. He's like going to meetings, trying to do the right thing, trying to keep his life together, and he's struggling to find work. Um, And he's a trained litigator, but like that's not looking like a viable (laughs) career for him at the moment. And so uh, his sponsor puts him in touch with an insurance company who are looking for an investigator. And he's like, well overqualified for this, but it's a job. And, you know, they're like, I guess you can have it. And he's like, I guess I'll take it. Um, And so he gets assigned this case where a man named Bill Ryan um, has died. He has left his house to his younger partner, this gay couple, um, and nobody can find the partner to tell him, like, hey, you've inherited this, like, beautiful, like, restored, you know, San Francisco home. And uh, and so, like, that's, like, his whole job is just to find this person to tell him, like, hey, you've inherited this, like, Aren't you excited? Um, and so he starts like going around trying to track down Bill Ryan's partner and starts to discover weird inconsistencies. Mary, maybe this death was not accidental. Um, Bill Ryan died of a gas leak and perhaps it was not just a gas leak accident. Um, and so, and then you rewind and you see Bill Ryan come to San Francisco as a young man. He's fled his home because his father, like, literally beat him when he discovered him engaging in a gay sex act with a friend. Um, and so he's really lost and he's really scarred and he is just totally adrift in San Francisco. And you see him find family and start to come into his own. But it's not easy. It's not simple. There's nothing clean cut about this story from start to finish. And it really, really... Packs such an emotional wallop when you see the community of gay men in San Francisco start to struggle with the AIDS epidemic and like what responses that provoked in them and the fears and like what they were pushed to do based on their own trauma and those fears. Um, and I, I thought it was a really satisfying ending, actually, although it's not like, again, nothing is clean cut in this. It's not like a clean ending. And it was really rough, but it was just so well done. And it's a really interesting pacing as you're going back and forth in time. Um, and and yeah, it just, whew, it's a lot. Uh, so <laughs> again, that's carved in bone by michael nava right i have a science fiction novel for you and that is a planet for rent by yas and it's translated by david fry um yas is a pen name for an author who is from cuba and who every time i see his author photo makes me think he's cosplaying eddie vetter in like 
a really great way. I, I love. <laughs> I just love it. It's like the most hardcore. He's got this really long, like it's not goth. What the grunge? Like this really long grunge hair and like cut up rocker shirts. It's awesome. Um, so. When I first picked up a Planet for Rent, it was blurbed as, like, the Martian Chronicles, but Cuba. Um, but I think it's a little bit more a darker version of the Hitchhiker's Guide, but Cuba, as opposed mm. to the Martian Chronicles. Um, so in this, you know, sci-fi universe, the um, Earth has been kind of deemed to be a backwater in a very Hitchhiker's Guide kind of way. Um, it's like a third world planet, basically, that nobody wants to visit. Um, there are tons of environmental problems. The economy is, a, is in a shambles. The entire population of the planet is like desperate. And so colonizers, alien colonizers from other um, worlds come and like, quote unquote, save the Earth by making it a tourist destination. And then everybody who lives there has to find themselves you know, a new way to survive in that kind of paradigm. So a lot, um, like, a lot of people become sex workers, and they're called social workers. A lot of people become like tour guides for aliens, but it involves them having to give up their physical autonomy so the tour so that the aliens can steer them. Like, it's all very dark and weird. Um, and the book itself is a collection of linked narratives. Like, I guess it, they're, maybe they're short stories. I don't know. I'm always confused about how to describe this because sometimes the characters appear in other narratives, sometimes they don't. So like, I'll leave that designation up to you um but you see you meet a new character every time so like there's someone working for the colonial police there's a character who is like a black marketeer there's an artist who is living off planet and trying to make ends meet um and all of that um is a giant allegory for cuba and the soviet union and the united states and the effects that those big countries have had on this small island country um but with tentacles oh it's so weird like it's super (laughs) weird and very dark and he is not afraid to make extremely stark comparisons that are not it's not a subtle kind of book but um i don't know like critiques of fascist governments with tentacles i'm kind of here for that like i was (laughs) it's the show title if ever i heard Um, Yeah, I don't even really know what else. Like, if you wanted, if you wanted the Hitchhiker's Guide to be actually about colonization and communism, then here you go. So that's a Planet for Rent by Yas. Amazing. Uh, Okay, so my last pick is cheating a little bit because it's an author. It is Juji Morales, who is Mexican and American and. Oh my God, y'all. She is an illustrator and a writer of kids' books. And I have bought so many of these <laughs> for the children in my life. And what I love about Juji's work is that whether she's illustrating for somebody else or, you know, illustrating her own books, because she does both, um, they're always just stunningly gorgeous. The illustrations are so beautiful. They're so lush. Um, and the kids that I've given them to love looking at them. And then her own work, you know, I think it's really interesting to look at them side by side. Like, for example, Dream is her story of coming to America with her young son and feeling just completely adrift as an immigrant and like how do you make home how do you make family how do you assuage all these fears and confusions um, and then there's Nino wrestles the world which is like about a little boy who wants to be a luchador and like his amazing adventures uh, in his you know underwear and his mask like it's really adorable and fun. And so her range is enormous. Um, But regardless, she's centering, 
you know, Latinx stories. And she's just so good. She's, it's like ridiculous how talented she is and how beautiful these books are. So, you know, you should go buy like all of them and gift them to all of the children that you know. Uh, again, that's Juji Morales and it's spelled Y-U-Y-I and that will be in the show notes. Okay, my last pick is also kid-related. I picked Mercy Suarez Changes Gears by Meg Medina, which is a middle-grade novel. Uh, Meg Medina is a Cuban author who lives in my town, and I see her sometimes, and it's awesome because she's smarter than everyone else. And this book is so sweet, and I loved it so much. So Mercy is the main character. She's in sixth grade, and she's going to a private school, like a very fancy private school in her hometown in Florida. Her and her older brother, Roly, are scholarship students, so their family cannot afford to send them to this super fancy private school. And so in order to make up for their free tuition, they have to do like a kind of like kind of community service. They have to clean the school. Her father and grandfather own a painting company, so they come in and like paint the gym over the summer and that kind of thing, like do maintenance and stuff like that. Um, and so she doesn't really fit in because most of the students are very wealthy. Um, and she it's her second year, and so she gets assigned what's called a sunshine buddy in the school, which is like when a new student comes in, you get assigned a sunshine buddy who is a established student to help kind of show you the ropes. And so she gets assigned a sun, uh, gets assigned a sunshine buddy who is like this very tall white kid from I think he's from Minnesota. And so Mercy is immediately like, ugh, odd, like why this boy, this giant white boy who looks like milk, like why do I have to deal with him? Um, but it turns out that every other girl in the school has a giant crush on him, and so they make her life pretty difficult because she, even though she doesn't want to gets to gets to quote unquote spend all of her time with this boy and so all of the really popular girls in school start making her life a little bit harder she doesn't really know why because like i didn't ask for this please someone help me like get me out of this awful situation so that's what's happening at school at home things are not going super well either her grandfather there her whole family lives on in like a like a compound almost like it's a bunch of houses on a street um so her extended family her aunt lives down the street her grandparents live across the street she obviously lives with her parents um and her grandfather who she's super close to has started acting really oddly he's starting to forget things he falls off his bike a lot um and in the evenings he's starting to get angry over things that don't make any sense and no one will tell her what's going on and so she's dealing with everything that's happening at school and usually her grandfather's her confidant like she brings him her problems and he helps her solve them but that's not happening right now so she's very flaily, like doesn't know what to do. Um, and it turns out that her grandfather has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and her family is keeping the secret from her. So my family has a lot of, um, a lot of my grandparents uh, and extended family, like great aunts and uncles and things like that have died from Alzheimer's. And so this, I feel like I wish I had had this, like when my grandmother mm. was first diagnosed, do you know what I mean? Because kids of that age who are in middle school who feel like they know everything, <laughs> but yeah. really don't, don't know anything. And it can be very frustrating to start to have this like burgeoning consciousness about what's going on around you and to start to recognize there are things that you're not being told and that they're important, but you're still too young to really get it. So like that, I think this could be such a helpful book to give a kid who is realizing that there's something wrong with their older relatives, even if they're told like this, your your grandfather has Alzheimer's or, you know, even if they're given the diagnosis, that doesn't necessarily mean anything to a kid that age. But like, so how do I handle it? What does it mean for, is he going to forget me? Like that kind of stuff. I think this is a really important book for kids in that situation. So that's Mercy Suarez Changes Gears by Meg Medina. And that's our show. Yee-hoo! <laughs> 
Thank you for going on this journey with us. As always, thank you for listening. If you are so inclined, we would love it if you would leave a rating and or a review on Apple Podcasts. It does help other book nerds to find the show, and we love to see the feedback. So thank you for that. Thank you also to today's sponsors for making the show possible. And in between shows, you can find us on social media. Amanda, where are you? I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. And I am on Instagram as I am Jen IRL. That's J-E-N-N-I-R-L. And I'm on Twitter as Jen IRL. And we will talk to you next time. Bye.